Folks, it's another episode of All the Responsibility, None of the Authority. I'm Rob McGordy, and on behalf of my co-host Nils Davis, I'd like to welcome you back. We had such a great conversation with David Benetti talking about innovation options that we split it into two episodes, and this is the second. Fair warning, it's a dense topic, and in the second half, we're jumping right back into the heart of things. If you haven't listened to the first half, we highly recommend you go back and listen to that one first. Heck, even if you didn't listen to it, it's probably worth the time to listen again as a refresher. In this second half, we're going to dive deeper into the application of the innovation options, some of the underlying theory behind it, and practical advice for product managers in leveraging this framework to move initiatives further in large organizations. We had a great time and want to thank David again for sharing his unique framework with us. So without further ado, we'll dive right back into the episode. So do you take sort of the downside risk and build it in as a potential upside? So for example, Polaroid, they built the first digital camera, they were way out of the curve, but then they thought that it would disrupt their their own current print business. They decided not to go for it. Would a calculation here include not just the upside of what digital cameras could bring in as a separate revenue stream, but also the mitigation of a loss if the entire industry were to move from print to digital? No, because you know ultimately the I don't I don't know enough about the Polaroid case in terms of how much market risk they had eliminated by the time they had developed the technology, right? So that there could they could have still been facing basic market risk. Um, I think that that's a different um, like the concept you're trying to say here is like, look, you're going to be disrupted. The only question is, do you make make money off of the disruption or you just go away? Right. And and so it, it's not like you can hold back the dam from happening like it will cannibalize your business. Like there's no question that your business will be cannibalized. So so my answer to that isn't usually that, um, you know, like an innovation option will save you from that because the innovation option can answer the question and you're still going to be worried about cannibalization. So my response to that usually is like, yes, you're going to cannibalize. Cannibals don't starve. right right i guess the concept would be if you have a cash cow business is it worthwhile to try to use this framework to build in a budget to go explore things that are not part of that core cash cow business and something that might save you from that downside if if you do get disrupted yes absolutely yeah it's exactly right so like the concept here is portfolio theory right so people that are in finance will understand portfolio theory specifically the CAPM for the capital asset pricing model theory, we're, we're basically saying, look, there's there's certain percentages of our company we want in certain different, uh, well, let me, again, let me take a, a, an example from the real world. Like you don't want to invest all of your stock in one company. Why? Because if that company goes bust, you're ruined, mm-hmm. right? So you can also make the most money if you bet everything on black at the casino. Like you'll double your, double your money in one, one roll, one spin of the wheel. It's just high, 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 high risk, <laughs> right? And so instead, we like to take a portfolio-based theory, which says, okay, yes, I'm going to have a little bit of money in these stocks and these stocks and these stocks, and I'm going to have some money in bonds, and then I'm going to have a little bit of money in some you know, insurance policies or maybe a little bit of gold or maybe some you know, hedging instruments, hedging options. 
right? So that you have this entire portfolio mix and your goal is to make the product mix, in this case, the, the mix of financial instruments, give you the most efficient return for your risk. And that's called being on the efficient frontier. That's a term in finance, being on the efficient frontier. And it's basically saying that, like, I'm going to have a certain tolerance for risk. And I want to make sure that whatever my, my portfolio is of investments matches my tolerance for risk. So the same thing has to be true for people that are in, in product, right? I want to have a product mix. Yes, I've got my product today that's representing the vast majority of my sales, existing you know analog cameras. But I also want to have a little bit of investment for the future in this you know really high growth industry, which is digital. And then, oh, I also want to have something over here, which is really, really in the future, which are you know holographic imagery, right? Whatever. And so you manage your overall portfolio saying, I have a certain tolerance for risk and I'm going to balance the different product lines that I have so that my product line as a company is on the efficient frontier in the same way that I manage my stock portfolio individually, right? Which makes a lot of sense for larger companies, but it seems today, at least in the software industry, that much of what we think our, our current listener base would be in. The early stage companies are effectively each of these each of these separate product lines that maybe a venture capitalist has. So in the same way that Eric Reese kind of pointed out that you're not necessarily going to be able to diversify and do a hundred different things in a, in a good lean startup business. It does seem like this would still be applicable, even if you are effectively putting all of your money on one potential product, because it allows you to still gate each of these steps and see if it's worth uh, pursuing. Is that fair to say? Um, I might not be understanding the question fully, but let me let me let me give you a different frame, and then you can you can tell me how close I am. If you are an individual company, you're you're a guy in a garage, and you're coming up with the next best thing, um, and you're by yourself, then you hold an option, and you don't care about anybody else or how there's any balanced portfolio. Why? It's just you. Like in the stock portfolio example, you're the company. Right, you're you're not looking at it as managing an entire portfolio. You're just a company, and so your success or failure, your, whether you live or die, will depend on whether or not you know that answer is closer to a billion than it is to zero. Right um, now, uh, there are people that do nothing but speculate in options. Like literally, they're just they're just gamblers, effectively, and they speculate in options, and and that's really what the analog here is right for that like i'm just speculating that my idea is actually going to be effective and i'm going to go do it the overall concept of the option as a risk management tool is really only relevant to companies that have a portfolio in some form right because just like just like life insurance is only relevant to people that have dependents like you know a 16 year old high school kid doesn't have life insurance. Why? Right? They've got nothing to protect. Whereas a larger firm that has, you know, many different product lines and has shareholders and stockholders and like they're trying to protect themselves against disruption for the future, having a certain small percentage of their overall resources in options makes sense because they're trying to balance the the overall portfolio. Now, I still think that if you're an individual startup, you should use this optional approach because I think it gives you a better valuation because it more accurately reflects what reality is, particularly at the very early stages. 
right? But again, in this concept, the VCs want to hold a portfolio of options. Like VCs don't invest in just one company because they know that the individual likelihood of success is actually quite low. So the only way that they make money is by having tens or hundreds of these, knowing that the law of large numbers will eventually produce a return and it's at a reduced risk. Like, you know, you could have had Sequoia invest, uh, you know, take their entire portfolio, invest it all in Facebook. Like they would have been extraordinarily wealthy. But they already were extraordinarily wealthy because Facebook hit, and they didn't have all the additional risk. So, um, th so that so it suggests two questions. So, one is, how big does a company have to be to use innovation options, roughly speaking? Um, and and would you would the metric be size in terms of dollars, or number of products, or number of I don't know what what other metrics there might be. So that's one question, and the other one actually super interesting. It sounded like you were talking about using the innovation option approach even for a small company, a startup, as a way of saying, "Hey, we know what we're doing in terms of reducing risk, and in terms of being able to say to a to a VC, I'm not just guessing at this. I have sort of a structure." Right. So, so the answer to your first question is more than one. <laughs> okay. Project, right? Right. So, you know, you could have a portfolio that's not terribly diverse because it's got, you know, two things that it's considering, but but mostly it's like are we, do we have a cash flow to protect? Like that that's really where the concept of options is most powerful. It's like do I have some cash flow that I'm trying to protect? Again, life insurance. Like I make money because I work and I bring home a salary that feeds my family every month. That cash flow is what I'm trying to protect by having life insurance so that if that cash flow goes away because I was killed or disabled or something, then my family can still get the same amount of money that I was making before. And I pay for that privilege, right? So if a company has some existing cash flow that they're trying to protect, then it makes sense to engage in innovation options as a tool to help, help uh protect against that downside of their existing industry being disrupted and and essentially that cash flow going away right right so that's so that's the sort of answer to your first question the second is just it's just a more accurate reflection of reality right again in the same way that you know product companies tweak their excel spreadsheet to get the number outcome like that same thing happens in vc right because everybody's dealing with uncertainty I have an own particular example where I was funding one of my early companies, very early, before I kind of figured out how the world worked. And I was working with the principal for the firm, and they're like, okay, well, let's go ahead and put your financial projections together. And so I dutifully went back to my MBA training and, like, okay, I know how to do this. And I did this whole big analysis. I spent months on this, getting all these reports and doing this fancy modeling and building this Excel spreadsheet that would make you weep with joy. It was so beautiful and elegant. And at the end, came up with this answer. And I can't remember what it was. It was like $46 million. And I took that to the principal. And the principal says, oh, oh, no, this is all wrong. Like, and I'm terrified. Like, what? Was that the wrong report? Or that was the wrong survey? Or, like, I had some problem in my math. Like, what did I do wrong? And he's like, no, no, no. This has to be $100 million. <laughs> And I said, what do, you, what do you mean? And I'm like, well, no, no. It has, it, you can just make it $100 million somehow. And I was like, well, wait a minute. Like, I did the analysis. Mm -hmm. Like, like, like. Like, I went out and figured out the answer. This is the answer. And it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That doesn't matter. We only fund projects that have a $100 million run rate over five years. So go make it that. And like, this is the guy, like, this is his firm, right? <laughs> it wasn't like an outside consultant. Like, he's deliberately telling me, like, yes, you need to produce a lie for my partners because the partners are expecting that lie. Right. 
Like, and I'm like, but this isn't right. And he's like, yeah, they know that's true. Just make it a hundred. Look, everybody's like, everybody's in on the lie. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> as long as we all have the shared lie, it'll be okay. Right. So I, like, this was preposterous to me, but what did I do? It's like, yes, sir. Right away, sir. You know, and I went and tweaked the numbers till I got a hundred million, not a hundred, right. It had to be, you know, 102.3. Right. Like just preposterous. Yeah, of course. Right. So like, like, like we all do this. It's like, we're like, somebody thinks we're getting away with this. Right. So, so like an innovation option actually reflects the reality. Like no VC, particularly, and I should say no VC. I mean like no early stage, like angel investor puts down $50,000 and then expects to see a $55,000 return. Right. No, look, it's either 5 million or it's nothing. Right. Right. Like there's, there's no like, you know, oh, I got 10% return. That was solid. Like that doesn't happen. Right. So let's let it, it functions as an option, right? Because options are either worthless. They're like, they're literally worth zero or they're worth something substantially more than that. There is no in between. So if we, if we individually start to recognize that there's just so many things become easier, like four nine, a valuations become easier and we can start to get out the real answer. It becomes easier. And like so many things because portfolio management becomes easier. Provisioning becomes easier. Risk management becomes easier. I mean, everything becomes easier because suddenly we're dealing with reality. We're no longer trying to, you know, just comport all of our lies to fit with the framework that we've chosen. Right. Like we're actually embracing what's true. Now, for an individual entrepreneur, that could also suck because they could come to the answer and the answer could be no, right? And that's why I'm saying for an individual person in a garage, like they don't care about portfolio theory. They care about getting their next funding. They care about being successful, right? And so for them, it's actually tougher. I think the real value, again, is with, with larger firms because they're engaged in a repeated game. Like if this one particular idea doesn't work, that's okay. I'll try the next idea. That idea doesn't work. That's okay. I'll try the next idea. Right. And if I do that fast enough, particularly faster than my competition, then I am going to win the innovation game. Yep. That makes a lot of sense. Um, do you have any uh, examples or stories of people making use of financial, of, of innovation options? Yeah. I have one particular example, which I'm particularly proud of because it's, it's a, not a startup. It's not a software company. It's a construction company. They're a company that, that, that literally builds shopping malls and hospitals and, you know, they use graders and tractors and they're engaged in the same type of innovation like every other company does, right? And their scale for innovation is is measured in years. Like so for them, if they can move if they can move their years long planning schedule to a quarterly or semi-annual planning schedule and innovation schedule, they're going to be so much better off than their competition because they're moving so much faster. And so they have their CFO and their CFO manages their portfolio of innovation options. So they have two they have two people. They have the CFO and then they went they have the C IO, which in their case is chief innovation officer. And so the, the chief innovation officer literally is the person who's responsible for managing their overall portfolio of the different projects. And so they have different sub teams that all work on different ideas. And when they start, they literally have a single piece of paper. That single piece of paper is literally like, this is the innovation option. And they list this is how much money I think it might be worth. This is how frequently I'm going to iterate. This is how much my budget request is. Um, and, and, and literally like all the, all the details in here, this is how much the option is worth. This is how much I'm going to spend. This is the ROI of this particular option. Everything is listed. And then there's caveats, um, excuse me, covenants that are associated with that, that are, that represent the, basically the pact between finance and product saying, and this is what we're going to do. 
I'm going to iterate. I'm going to release my results quarterly. This is how we're going to measure the results. Um, once I get the money, you can't take it away. If the thing is successful, we're going to exercise the option. And each party has certain rights that are all clearly delineated. They both sign it. And when they sign it, he gets his money. So the, the innovation op option person, the innovation chief innovation op officer is the person who then sort of like says, okay, out of all these competing ideas, like where are we going to put our money? Right? So they have the ability to financially make a decision based on what the value values, uh, the option value is, as well as the option risk measurement, because one of the outputs of risk of, of measurement for the innovation option is a risk measurement. And so they're looking at that sort of portfolio balance. And the CFO is now able to do proper planning because they're like, oh, if all these options hit and some are green and some are red, I'm going to need to set aside this much money to finance them. And it represents this an impact on my cash flow. And this is how it relates to the overall product portfolio so that I can report to the CEO. Am I really balanced off and in terms of the overall financial portfolio of the company? So we have certain amounts in innovation, certain amounts in you know existing cash flow businesses, certain amounts in growth businesses. And it's just, it's so simple because every quarter, the CFO just fl literally flips through the paper. <laughs> it's just He's flipping through the options like somebody would flip through the stocks in their stock portfolio, right? And the CIO, their only job is to just make sure that that CFO is getting accurate information, right? If the information is, look, this is not a good idea, it's okay. Like, it's okay. Like, it, like life insurance doesn't have <laughs> to be exercised to be worth something. And as long as everybody sort of understands that and they have this mutual understanding that we're going to stop lying to each other and we're going to make it on the basis of truth. And if that truth is bad news, that's okay because accurate bad news is so much better for the company than inaccurate good news. Like we want to focus on the accuracy part, right? Not the fact that the news is good or bad because otherwise what happens is people just continue to fake good news. Just like I was told by that principal, give me fake good news. That's what I want to see. Like, to my mind, that's lunacy beyond, like, 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 even as a stupid punk kid, I knew that was idiotic, right? But I'm not going to tell the guy he's an idiot because I wanted his money, right? And so this just continues on. It's crazy. And so uh, this company is um, having success with this? Yes, yes, yes. The company is having success. So getting it, getting innovations to market uh, in that sense must be new buildings or new building types or who knows what. Well, so let me let me just let me just clarify that, right? So, like, they are having success in the sense that their innovation projects more accurately map reality. Like, it does not guarantee success. Like, that's a trap, right? So, so, so they are having success as a portion of that, but that's orthogonal to the main point of innovation options, which is I'm getting accurate information. So, if they did that for three years and they got nothing but like, nope, don't pursue this. Nope, don't pursue this. Nope, don't pursue this. As long as that's an accurate answer, that's okay. Right? The problem comes when we demand success under conditions of uncertainty. That that has to be a lie by definition. That must be a lie. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, the reason you do it presumably is so that you can put more bets out, more irons in the fire, so to speak, in some sense. Correct. And yeah. know which ones you should pursue and not pursue the wrong ones. Yes. You want to make sure that whatever decision you make, you have confidence it's going to be the right decision. Yeah. Right. And and the assumption there is that, again, through the law of large numbers, you know, if we continue to take that approach and we dis and we are disciplined in taking that approach, we are going to increase our chances of success. Why? Because we're only applying money to things that have the possibility of success. Right. Yeah. 
right? And so it's not it's not about guaranteeing success. It's about increasing our chances for success, not because we become a better fortune teller, but because we, we become a, a better observer of reality. Right. Uh, this has really been great, David. Um, <laughs> really appreciate the, the this information. And it, as you mentioned at the outset, without visuals, it's a little challenging. So we will put some links up for visuals. And, and you also have some talks online, I think, that people can check out. And we'll put up links to those as well on the uh, alltheresponsibility.com website. Um, I was wondering, in closing, if you have some ideas about a few things that product managers or a product management team or a product management leader could do start doing today to put these ideas into practice if they're not already doing it. Right. So I think the first thing they need to do is, is just familiarize themselves with the concepts, right? And if, if the concepts don't make any sense, like if, the, if these analogies I've given about mortgage rate locks or life insurance, like if those don't, if those don't make any sense, you're, you're not going to get, you're not going to get very far, right? Because um, like they're, they're, they're fairly well known in the finance world, but they're not as well known in in the product world, right? And and the in despite all of its disadvantages, you know, the great thing about an MPV type analysis is that it's pretty easy to understand. Like I'm going to make some assumption about the future, I'm going to make some investment today, and as long as one number is bigger than the other, I can move forward. Right? Where the optionality starts to say, "Oh, it could be this, it could be that." So so one of the first things that they can do is just familiarize themselves you know, with these concepts. So I think a second thing they can do is building on that is if they, if they go to uh, innovation option, innovation-options.com, innovation-options.com, I've got a handy little web calculator there that people can start to just, just mess around, just start to put in numbers and, and see what comes out. And there's some visuals there that respond in real time. So that can help people um, help people understand um, how the calculation is made and, and how it differs from, you know, the existing the existing product line. I think the third thing to do is to engage with finance. Like like finance is like every time you talk to product people that have to actually make that finance pitch or whatever, like they're they sweat and they're like blood drains from their face and like, oh my God, it's like uh, you know, and they get really spooked and scared, right? Where, where, and it's because they feel like they're going to get found out, like, oh my gosh, and like, what if they find out there's something wrong with this analysis? Just like I was with this, with this principle, like, oh my God, what if they find out if there's something wrong with this analysis? It's like, we're fooling nobody. Like we're fooling nobody. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They know that we're engaged in this ledger domain, like, and, and we know that they know, like everybody knows. So if we just engage with finance and say, look. I understand this is typically how we do things, but we have a huge advantage to the firm if we can change our mindset, right? Because ultimately, we all know these are lies, you know, or at best, just really, really random guesses, right? Right. So if we actually start to realize that these are guesses, if we can build into that concept that, okay, it's a guess, how do we now change our mindset now that we know it's a guess, you can suggest innovation options to them, right? And they can they can they can look into it and they can sort of like say oh yes I get this because they'll they'll more than likely have a a, a more foundational background in that that's an assumption on my part by the way <laughs> but but you know they they may understand and appreciate you know saying that look there is a high degree of uncertainty well, let's let's use some options to manage it because right. wherever you find uncertainty you'll find options that manage it. And innovation is the most uncertain thing we do. Well, let's try that approach. 
Well, that is that's. I think that's. Those are great suggestions, and and I think those are things that people can do immediately, for sure, to get started with that. Well, David, this has been a great conversation, and um, I think it's a really fantastic concept. And as you say, it's a little bit challenging and, and not as familiar to those of us that are not don't have the finance background. But if we put our minds to it and start to understand it, I think we're going to get a lot of value out of it. So I really appreciate the time you've taken and, uh, and all the work you've done around this concept. I think it's fantastic. Well, you're most welcome. And uh, I, do, uh, I do think we have the advantage of, of knowing that the alternative we know is pretty bad. So this may not be the solution, but uh, we, we at least have a chance because we, uh, we know the alternative is, has produced some of the more spectacular failures uh, in industries, large and small. So uh, if, this, if this can help reduce that, increase our chances of success and make some product managers more successful than they otherwise would be, then, uh, then I will consider myself uh, a happy man. Fantastic. And so if people want to follow up with you, um, what's the best ways to find your information? So they can just search for me, D. Benetti, David Benetti, B-I-N-E-T-T-I. And I'm fortunate in that it's distinctive in us that if you just Google D. Benetti, that, uh, that, that then you'll find me. Uh, if they want to learn more about Innovation Options itself, again, innovation-options.com. Uh, dbenetti.com uh, and if you need to reach me I've got my cell phone on my website you can just call me up <laughs> okay fantastic well again appreciate it very much uh, thanks for coming in and recording on this beautiful I think it's a rainy morning for all of us on the phone and uh, thanks again pleasure thanks Dave bye bye well that's innovation options for you folks hope you enjoyed the second half of this conversation with David Benetti to get more information and see show notes for this and all of our other episodes, go to alltheresponsibility.com. And of course, while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to keep up to date on the latest. From my co-host, Nils Davis, and myself, Rob McGordy, thanks again for joining us. Have a great one. We have ignition.